0: So, uh, where are you now? Well, I'm in Salt Lake City practicing (laughs)
1: bankruptcy law. I wanted to redeem people's souls, and now I'm redeeming their cars. Uh, it's kind of ironic. The ironies of God seem to be endless. Um, people want to know whether I still have faith. I don't think so. Uh, there was a time when I think I had a lot of faith. I mean, I believed deeply and profoundly and intensely now i'm very uncertain and so you've asked me throughout this you know whether i thought then that i was doing right and i've answered truthfully that then i did you didn't ask me whether i feel that way now would i now do the things i did probably not would i now give those speeches would i now probably not. Why not? Uh, I think because I'm so uncertain now. I mean I do have hope. It rises and falls. It comes in waves and troughs, you know, peaks and troughs. Um, Sometimes some days I believe and some days I don't believe. In fact, my favorite scripture is that one in Mark, I think, about the man who says to Jesus, his daughter's going to be healed, and Jesus says, anything is possible to the person that believes. And the man says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. That's me. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Sometimes I find myself talking to the Lord, and then stopping and thinking, I wonder what am I doing I don't even know if there is a Lord. <laughs> you know, I hope there is. I think it's because I, I, in, in, the, in in Mormonism, uh, certainty was became equated with authority. People bear their testimonies, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I don't think it's possible to know beyond a shadow of a doubt because we live in the valley of the shadow of doubt and death. And I don't think we can escape that. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have doubts. I don't think you can have faith without doubt. I don't think faith removes all doubt. I think sometimes doubt is a negative way of expressing faith. We can doubt our doubts. You know, we can doubt hell. (laughs) We can doubt false doctrine, all of which is a way of expressing faith. I mean, we, we are defined by not only what we believe but what we refuse to believe. So I don't think faith and doubt are that are inseparable. I think they're basically like pleasure and pain. I mean, they come together. You can't have really one without the other. And it's how we manage our doubts and manage our faith. If our faith becomes so powerful, so strong, so certain that we're willing to impose our beliefs on others and punish them for not agreeing with us, I think our faith has taken us down a wrong path. If our doubts are such that we are so certain of our doubts, so confident in our doubts that we are mock and are cynical of other people's belief structure, I think that our doubts have taken us down the wrong path. But if our faith uh, gives rise to hope and charity and allows us to uh, deal with existential angst and carry on in the face of, you know, trials, then I think faith is good. And if doubt softens our certainty, softens our desire, our arrogance, then I think doubt is a good thing. Now, I know a lot of people listening to this, if they have gotten this far, and I have not been offended by earlier, they will say, well, you're arrogant. Well, I don't, I don't think I am. I may be, but I don't think so. I think I'm just, uh, I speak boldly. I, um, I, um, I don't, uh, I don't uh, deal in euphemisms usually, and I'm Mediterranean and I'm kind of an in-your-face kind of guy, but but I don't think it's arrogance. Um, certainly, my belief that the leaders of the church could improve could be certainly, and I'm uh, certainly that is the closest thing that I do to arrogance because it seems like I'm judging them, but my feeling is. We're all in it together. I, I, again, you recognize that I see the ordinances as a way of bringing us into one family, complaining to your dad that he's a bad driver. <laughs> you know, he wants to always drive on all the vacation vacations. You say, Dad, you know, you're just a lousy driver. Face it. You know, you go too fast, you go too slow. You, you keep doing this to the sound of the music, gassing it, and so you're rocking the car. You don't know you're doing it. We're all nauseated in the back seat. You're just a terrible driver. It doesn't mean you don't love your dad. It doesn't mean he isn't a good dad. It, it isn't, doesn't mean he isn't your dad. You know, you got DNA to prove he is. That's how I feel about the leaders of the church. They're, they're in their positions. I, I, some of them may have wormed their way into these offices. I suppose that can happen. I feel sorry for them because then they don't get much of a support from on high if they've done that and they can be left dangling. But, you know, I do not fault the leaders of the church if they don't get better revelations, if God does not speak to them. It's not their fault. It's not their fault if, if God doesn't speak to them in a way that they can say, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord doesn't tell them, I want you to write this revelation and say, the Lord appeared to me in the, I mean, in the Salt Lake Temple on such and such a day, and, and I felt his wounds, and I know it was real, and, and he told me to say this to the saints. You know, if the Lord doesn't command the president of the church to write that kind of a revelation, it's never going to happen. No, 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 President Hinckley would not arrogate to himself this thing. It's not their fault then. But it is their fault to let people believe they get that kind of revelation when they don't. And it is their fault if they're not clear about it. If they don't make it clear. They can say, when we tell you this, we say, we are not, this is not the result of a discussion we had, and this is our best thinking. This is the word of the Lord himself. But this here, it isn't exactly like that. This This is the best that we, as the heads of the church, could think of, and this is our solution to a problem. And we feel this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We feel very strongly that it is. But it isn't God speaking to us out of his own mouth in his resurrected body. That isn't it. And this is just because our experience has taught us after many years that if we do this, this is going to happen, and so we're not doing that anymore. We're going to do this. And this comes from experience. And it's the best we can do.
0: What if that weakens the church because it makes the church think that God's not really at the helm, but instead... It's a bunch of wise, good men doing the best they can.
1: The reason why it won't weaken the church is because it's the truth. And if it's said by men who love the members of the church and are telling them the truth, how can that hurt the members?
0: Because, as you said about two hours ago, people are inspired by the fantastic and the irrational. And so this belief that these men are special witnesses of Christ who speak directly with God in Christ and who get their direction and their guidance directly from them is the sustenance that, that gives these members a desire to stay faithful to their spouses and to, and to serve in the church and to keep the church strong and vital. To demystify that is like the wizard pulling across the curtain and saying, hey, it's just me, but still pay attention to that big mask up there and do what he says.
1: Well, I imagine that some people would respond that way, but I don't think that that's what would really happen. I I, I don't think they would stop believing in the leaders of the church, uh, as leaders of the church. They would come to realize that it's a probationary state, that the purpose of mortality is to come to terms with death. It is to come to terms with doubt. They would have to be taught, along with this, that it's wrong for the saints to be members of the church because of an error, of a mistake. They have to be members of the church because of the testimony that they have received from the Spirit that it's true. Not because the brethren do or don't speak to God face to face not because of the nature and the quality of the leadership's revelations, but because a power from God has entered in the soul of that member and has transformed that member. They have, the Lord says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. They have to feel the sap, the Spirit of God, coming out of the trunk into the branches. That's what makes them part of the, the vine. If they're there because somebody has glued them on with, you know, you know superglue, that's not the same. That's the superglue of lies isn't what's going to make you a living body. And so, I think that the saints have to be taught that the first principle of the gospel is not obedience, but the first principle of the gospel is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is not certainty. What is it? Well, when you're young, faith is what you believe because what your parents have taught you and your leaders have taught you and your elders have taught you. But when you're middle-aged, faith is based upon the experiences that you yourself have had. But when you have enough of those experiences, the negative ones pile up. I mean, you when you're younger, you, you your father lays his hands upon you and he blesses you and you get better. Or like what happened to me when I was an Aaronic Priesthood leader. I went to the... Uh, Dorms, and one of the guys there, David Bradford, was very sick, and I put my hands on him and blessed him, and all of a sudden he threw up the thing that was in the stomach that was making him sick, and he was better immediately and went. That was such a positive experience. People believe that it was to the talk of the whole dorm. And then you believe it because of those good experiences, but as you get older, you get more and more bad experiences. Divorce happens children go awry, people take drugs, jobs are lost, people, houses go into foreclosure, bad things happen. And the more bad things happen, the more difficult it is to predicate your faith upon positive experiences. So then what happens as you get my age. You've been excommunicated, people think you're arrogant, People think you want to start the, your own church. People think you're ambitious to be an apostle. People think you're a polygamist. People think you're a homosexual. People think you're an asexual. People think you're a nitwit. People, I mean, every possible thing, you know, an adulterer, you name it. How does a person in that situation have faith? Well, you get up in the morning and you choose to have it. You choose to believe in Jesus, even though he may be a fictional character like Hamlet. He may be as fictional as Henry V, as fictional as Dionysus. You choose every day. Every day you choose to believe. Every day you choose to have hope. Every day you choose to do to be charitable, to have the not just to your friends and your family but your enemies those people who have despitefully used you there's not much you can do in the way of charity for your enemies but you can pray for them you can hope for the best you cannot judge them and condemn them i mean it's true that you see people will say well paul you just judged the apostles no i didn't i just explained to you why i think they don't do a very good job (laughs) but that isn't judgment in the sense that I think they should go to hell or be punished. I would never punish them. If the tables were turned and I was in their place with what I know now, I would never do that. There may have been a time where I might have because I was young and stupid. But now it doesn't do any good to drive people out. I mean, I'm sure a child molester, somebody who's murdering people, somebody who's selling the saints' swampland in Texas or blowing up chapels. Yeah because they're doing palpable damage. But over a disagreement about something as difficult to sort out as the Godhead, you think that was settled? You think the Godhead issue was settled in Mormonism? No, it's just you've got 10 different versions of the Godhead thing now. How do we sort it out? Well, you sort it out by getting together and having dinner and a barbecue and you talk, apostle to apostate, until you both realize, well, You're not as great an apostle as I thought, and I'm not as bad as an apostate as you thought. And you come closer together until you realize that, you know, it's only doctrine. What matters is that the doctrine doesn't become a wedge. It becomes something we can discuss, something we can talk about, something that can enliven our lives, give it meaning, but we're not going to use it as a means to throw each other out.
0: If you, um, this is a, a loaded question, but think back to the time when you were, most active in the church, and you were most embraced by the church, and you were living off the thrill of the enlightenment that you were receiving. If you could choose that time versus where you are now, would you go back and, and maybe undo? Uh, you know, this is sort of a happiness question. Are you happier now than you were then? Are you Do you feel more at peace uh, than you felt back then? Or do you feel like it's just gone sour and will stay sour? Or do you feel more hope and off, more authentic than you've ever felt?
1: Well, I can remember those days. And I know what you mean. I would not go back. Because um, of something Joseph Smith said. If you, your mind, oh man, if you wish to contemplate God, you have to be willing to go to the highest, to go, to rise to the highest point, and sink to the lowest abyss. And I think back in those days, when I was having, uh, you know what you say, I was at, at, at at the zenith of my church experience. I wasn't experiencing the nadir. And after my excommunication, and probably in the late, even into 2000, 2001, I was experiencing the nadir. It's only been in the last maybe year or two. That I have come become to to come out of the abyss more, and to feel uh, that that wasn't where I was.
0: Why is that, Nader, important?
1: Because if you want to become the friend of Jesus, you have to know something about descending below all things. I mean. That's the whole point of my theology, is that he didn't insulate himself as sovereign from the creation and from what he inflicted upon others. He Not only not only do we have to endure whatsoever the Lord sees fit to inflict upon us, as the scripture says, but he had to too. He inflicted it upon himself in worst measure. And the idea is that the purpose is that we have experience. And what does the experience teach us? Well, it teaches me not to you know it teaches me to <laughs> to that truth is more fluid it's not rigid there's something about spirituality that isn't a constant judgment now i know there's a paradox in that because i've been judgmental about the church leaders but i'm only judgmental of them on one point and that is that they're judgmental <laughs> they need not be judgmental they they need not try to create a patriarchal religion where the patriarch is always right, and they need not to enlist the theology of God the Father to fortify a patriarchal structure which allows them to dictate to the saints. I I think that's wrong. I think they need to take a Christocentric view of this. They need to base it on Christ. Christ. they need to be like him they need to be the servant of all as he was they need to be willing to suffer with the saints not stand apart and judge they need to be more embracing and I think they try to do that in their own personal lives I don't have doubts about that I think it's very hard for them to translate that into the corporate structure to somehow let that happen through the departments of the church you know I mean there's lots of things that they could correct but it's very hard to do it it's very scary it's very frightening because that's not what they would do in a corporate organization. I mean, they've got real estate to manage. They've got employees all over. They've got people who are ambitious in working their way up. They've got universities to do, and students, they've got relationships with government and other churches and foreign governments, and they've got you know billions of in dollars invested in an organization, and their real their role is to try to the whole purpose of this is to bring people to spiritual maturation, but sometimes the corporation, as much as it facilitates this, it can also interfere with it. And it's very, I, I give them great credit for the management. I mean, I think that's not, my problem doesn't go to their management. I mean, sometimes I think they overmanage because of their legalism. But it's the legalism that's the problem, not the overmanagement. The overmanagement would go away if they would trust the Lord to do His work he doesn't always report to them <laughs> and and not everything that comes into their collective head is for his will and i don't think they know that and i think they worry like you do that if they were to be frank about this that many people might lose their testimony and leave so i think they are worried they've got a tiger by the tail they, The I believe sometimes that one of the biggest problems we have in the LDS church is that the leaders expect the saints to be perfect and the saints expect the leaders to be perfect. And that that mutual expectation creates a lot of problems. And they they can't accept that God works through somebody as imperfect as, you know, as sometimes they identify, me. And sometimes saints don't think that God can work through somebody as imperfect as they are. And that's not true. That's all God has is imperfect people to work through, and he does however he does. It's a miracle. And it's like in Shakespeare in Love, you know. It will all turn out well. How? I don't know. It's a miracle. It will turn out well. Even for me and others, it may not have seemed so. I think in the end, you know, I I have hope that in the end, all of the animosities and all the concerns will, can be swept away and, you know, there would be genuine repentance and forgiveness and understanding, even if that's delayed somewhat. So there it is.